just going to pray before we turn to God's word and we'll ask his help uh, to understand the scriptures together. Let's call on him. Father, we're so thankful to be able to sing those words this morning. Thanking you for the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. But thank you also that you've left the Holy Spirit on earth till your work is done. And we pray that he would be here with us now as we open the scriptures together to speak to our hearts through what is written in your word. Lord, we recognise this book is the sword of the spirit, as we were telling the children. It's his book and we pray he would drive it home to our hearts today. We pray for those friends who are watching on Zoom, that you would bless them equally, Lord. And those who are not able to be with us because of illness, Lord, draw near to them and be their comforter and strength. Those who are away with loved ones in crisis, we pray for them also as we commit our church family to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 60. Psalm 60. Psalm 60. All right, and you'll notice it has a big inscription at the top of this psalm. This is the biggest inscription uh, in any psalm except for Psalm 18, and it tells us some valuable things. I'm just going to tell you this on the way in. It says, For the director of music, to the tune of Lily of the Covenant, a Mictan of David, for teaching when he fought Aram Naharaim and Aram Zobar. And when Joab returned and stuck, struck down 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Now, what does that teach us? That teaches us that this psalm is to be played. It was a musical thing. It was a hymn, basically, to be played in, in the temple, in the worship. And so it was for the director of music or the chief musician. And David said this was for the top priest who was in charge of the choir to sing. And he even gave the tune, the Lily of the Covenant, so they knew what to sing it on. It was called a miktam. That tells us the next thing. It is a psalm to be valued because a miktam means an engraved. That's what something engraved. That's what it literally means. Can you imagine this psalm engraved on a bar of gold? That's what it means. And the uh, Puritans used to call the miktams the golden psalms. It's saying this is a very precious psalm, a psalm to be valued. And we're also told it's a psalm to be used. It's a psalm for teaching. That's what it says in that inscription there. Now the psalms were not just for singing, they were for instruction too. And that's why we today use their words as sermon uh, material. Because although we don't have the tunes, they are for that purpose. And then it tells us it's, for, uh, it's to be connected as well to a historical context, which we will talk about uh, as we go on through. So that inscription at the beginning is very important. And then comes the psalm itself. Verse 1. You have rejected us, O God, and burst forth upon us. You have been angry. Now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. 
But for those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Save us and help us with your right hand, that those you love may be delivered. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Sukkot. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter, Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom I toss my sandal, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? Give us aid against the enemy, for the help of man is worthless. With God we will gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. Please keep your Bibles open there. Uh, In 2017, uh, some skiers in the French Alps got stuck in their gondola carrying them up the ski slope. They were already over a thousand feet uh, up the mountain. They were going up another thousand feet. And after it had gone uh, a quarter of the way up, it suddenly stopped and it broke down. Can you imagine a terrifying thing? There was 150 people trapped inside that gondola and they were stuck inside for three hours. And as darkness came, they realized they had to get these people out quickly. There wasn't going to be time to repair it uh, while the people were still inside. And the only way to get them out was for a man to be lowered down from a helicopter. And you can see the helicopter coming there over the uh, top of the uh, gondolas. And he had to come down on a winch. And he had to then make a winch down to the ground for each of those people to go down uh, on a rope to get down from and they were all exhausted hot from being in there together very thirsty and probably vowing to sue the company (laughs) uh, that uh, was running the ski lift but what a picture really of our world our world is a broken world and mankind needs to be rescued from it I'm a Bob Dylan fan and in the 1990s Bob Dylan wrote a, a, a song called Everything is Broken. He said this, broken lines, broken springs, broken threads, broken strings, broken idols, broken heads, people sleeping in broken beds. And no use jiving and no use joking, everything is broken. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts, broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. Seems like every time you stop and turn around, something else just hits the ground. Broken cutters, broken saws, broken buckles, broken laws, broken bodies, broken bones, broken voices on broken phones. Take a deep breath, feels like you're choking. Everything is broken. Broken hands on broken plows, broken treaties, broken vows, broken pipes, broken tools, people bending, broken rules. Everything is broken. What a comment on the world that we're living in today. And I think we can see that's true, can't we? You know, you've only got to look at the things in our paper at this time. Look how broken the royal family is. 
with all that we've heard about them this week. Look how broken our nation is with all the strikes that are taking place. Look how broken our world is with the wars taking place out in Ukraine and Russia. Look how broken mankind is with his own health, with things like COVID and things like this. The world is a broken world. And there's nowhere you can go to get away from it. You know, this came home to me when I read about this gentleman, Sutomu Yamaguchi. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Because uh, he was a Japanese gentleman who, in the uh, late 1940s, uh, uh, was uh, fighting for Japan. And uh, he was in the city of Hiroshima. And on the 6th of August 1945, he was one and a half miles away from the drop zone where the bomb the, uh, the nuclear bomb was dropped by the Americans. He suffered severe burns and went back home to his home in Nagasaki. <laughs> and two days later, he was a mile and a half away from the second drop zone as well. You think, what are the chances of that? <laughs> but nowhere. You can't get away from it, can you? We live in a broken world. And uh, this is what David is talking about here in this psalm, because it came home to him and the people of Israel at a time of national crisis. Israel had been uh, growing and doing really well. It was a unique time. The two major superpowers in the Middle East, Egypt and Mesopotamia, had become nullified. They'd been defunct. And that was leaving time for David and his kingdom to grow. And the kingdom under David was growing bigger than it had ever been. Israel was conquering the promised land and as God had promised to Abraham, right up to the Euphrates River. It was a tremendous time. And David was right up here in the north, up uh, near a place called Zobar, where there's a kingdom there. And uh, also where it says in the inscription, Aram Naharaim, which is basically the, the northern part of the Mesopotamia uh, up near the Euphrates. And while he and his armies were conquering up here, as we read about in the book of Samuel and in the book of Chronicles, the Edomites came from down below and saw David's away, we can come and attack. And as the Edomites always do in scripture, they come from behind and they attack from behind. And they brought a devastating attack against the people of Judah. Well, David tried to recover the situation. He came to fight against Judah, against Edom, and uh, sadly he was beaten. We can draw that out from verse 10. He says, is it not you, O God, who have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? This was a shock. There was a shock defeat when David went to fight against them. And in the end, David's uh, general Joab went out again and fought them. And fought them in a place called the Valley of Salt, as we read in the inscription there. And uh, he did get the victory. And 12,000 Edomites were killed uh, by Joab. 18,000 altogether in the ultimate fulfillment of the numbers, uh, according to the book of Samuel. And victory was returned. But it was a, a time of national crisis and difficulty. And it brought home to David and the people of Israel, that they were living in a broken world. And David wrote this psalm as a teaching psalm on this matter, so that we could reflect 
and learn from David's experience and what David's insights were about this matter. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want you to see this psalm under four headings. First of all, our state of turmoil in verses 1 to 3. Secondly, our standard of truth in verses 4 to 5. Thirdly, our sight of tomorrow, verses 6 to 10. And fourthly, our strength for today in verses 11 and 12. We'll try and get through this and keep to time. First of all then, our state of turmoil in verses 1 to 3. Have a look at verse 1. David says, you have rejected us, O God, and burst forth upon us. You have been angry, now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open, mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. This experience David and the people of Israel had experienced uh, had brought them into a state of great turmoil. It was not only a time of military defeat, it was a time that shook them as a people to the core. And David describes it in language that has been suggested it could be an earthquake that had happened. I think, though, rather what David is saying is you've shaken the nations. You know, like God says in the last days, he will shake the nations. Hebrews chapter 12. Well, this is what David said had happened. He said, you know, in verse 2, you've shaken the land and torn it open (laughs) like an earthquake. Mend its fractures for its quaking. And uh, he says, you've given us wine to make us stagger. You see a, a drunken man staggering down the street. It's like what somebody is trying to walk through an earthquake in. And uh, it's a picture of how they were as a nation in their shock state at this terrible attack by the Edomites. And David recognizes this state of turmoil that they're in as a nation has actually come from God himself. That was the shock. Did you notice each of those phrases begins with the word you. You have rejected us, O God. You have been angry. Verse 2, you have shaken the land. Verse 3, you have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. You have done it, God. And David realizes this time of turmoil and difficulty has come on them from God himself. Now that may sound rather a strange thing to say because we tend to always see God as the answer to the problems, not the reason why some difficulties happen in life. So you say, why why would God allow these things to happen? Why would God be responsible for them? Well, in the words of Bishop J.C. Ryle, trials are intended to make us think and to drive us to our knees. And I have to say that's absolutely true. God allows difficult things to happen, sometimes sends difficult things into the world to bring us to our senses as to where we are spiritually. It's a bit like the parable of the prodigal son. You know, the prodigal son, when he had all his money and everything was going fine, he wasn't worried about his father back home. He was drinking, he was partying with the prostitutes and everything that the parable tells us about. But when the money ran out and he ended up in the pigsty, the Bible says that's when he came to his senses. And this is God's purpose in sending difficulties into the world. It's been as a result of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden that that 
uh, suffering and pain has come in. God warned Adam, the day you eat the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. And Adam brought suffering into the world. But God also sometimes uses suffering to get through to a human race that won't listen any other way. C.S. Lewis once said, God speaks in normal ways and suffering is when he is shouting. And often God has to raise his voice to get across to humanity because people won't listen to God. And David's prayer is the right one. He says in verse 1, you've been angry, now restore us. Restore us. Put us back together. And that phrase there is a beautiful phrase. He's saying, God, put us back as strong as we were before this happened. Make it go right again. And this is what each one of us needs to do. We need to realize when suffering comes into the world and maybe when it comes into our world because things have gone wrong. Maybe God is getting our attention saying, look, you can't live without me. And even if you can live without me, you can't die without me. You need to know me as your savior before you cross that line into eternity. And if you don't like the suffering now, you definitely won't like the suffering later. So stop and think about where you're going and what it's like. This is why God allows difficult things sometimes to happen in life. One man who got this message was a man by the name of Shane Logan. Russell, you're not looking in a mirror there, okay? (laughs) It does look like you, but he's a gentleman from Northern Ireland. And he was a very successful businessman. And uh, he had been military trained at Sandhurst and uh, been to university. He was a chief executive three times over in companies, a very prosperous man. But in the Gideon's magazine some time back, he told his testimony, he said this, Then within a two-year period, my business almost failed and my children were extremely ill. My marriage failed, much of it was my own fault. I remember kneeling down by my bed and asking God for help. I was at my wit's end and right on the edge. I told him I was sorry, that there must be a better way and that better way must be him. He said this wasn't the first time I'd cried out to God for help because he said he had asked God to help him in the past and God had helped him and he'd forgotten about God and then never gone on with him. But he said God had allowed this to happen. He said having prayed for help by my bed once again God was faithful and things improved dramatically. Instrumental to the change was a Gideon by the name of David Brown. What a good name. (laughs) And he's not here to hear this morning. (laughs) And he gave me a Gideon New Testament, which I read every day without fail. And I started to go to church and I became a Christian. But do you see the point there? God got through to that man through the difficulties. And the state of turmoil is sometimes what God uses. That's what David's teaching us. And I wonder if that's what he's teaching you this morning. If he is, don't make him shout any louder. Don't make him shout any louder. Respond now while there is time to come to the Lord and be saved. The second thing I want you to see here is our standard of truth in verses 4 to 5. Because David goes on and he says this, But those who fear you, you have, for those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. 
Now, I have to be honest with you, I don't find the NIV as clear to understand here as the New King James Version. So I'm going to read it for you from there, and uh, hopefully it'll help bring clarity. David says, you have given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth. And what David is saying here is that even though the world is in a shaking mess, and even though our little corner of the world here in Israel is in a shaking mess, nevertheless, we still have a standard of truth for holding up for those who love God's truth. And uh, that standard of truth I believe, is the Bible itself, the word of God, the truth about our God. This is why there's a a famous Christian book company called the Banner of Truth Trust. And if you ever see any books uh, by the Banner of Truth Trust, I can recommend probably 99.9% of them. They're really solid theology. Some of them very heavy, but they are really good books that are designed to bring you close to God. And the design of that name, the Banner of Truth Trust, is because they're saying, look, God has given a banner, a standard to those who fear him. And in the midst of this shaking world, we have something to hold up and say, here's a rallying point. We can come around and we can find direction and we can find truth. And uh, this is the wonderful message that the Christian has to share with the world. And it's a message designed to bring salvation. Look at verse 5. It says, save us and help us with your right hand, that those you love may be delivered. As God's word is held up, people will see the truth and rally to it and turn to the Lord and be saved. And the message of the Lord Jesus Christ is especially the banner that we're to hold up. Did you know one of the names of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he is the banner? That's one of the names we don't often think about. But in Exodus 17, it says, Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner. And in uh, Isaiah chapter 11, the prophecy about David's son in the future, the Lord Jesus, is in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. (laughs) And it's the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ as we hold it up. We have a standard to hold up in the midst of this shaking world, this broken world. Uh, in this world of chaos you know a standard on the battlefield was a rallying point for the truth troops in the midst of the chaos of a battle if you ever read stories of battles and and read what it was like for the soldiers there's so much noise you can't gather your thoughts it's disorientating bombs going off or or shouts of battle cry there's fear there's adrenaline pumping perhaps you're you're dealing with the elements as well and the fear of the enemy and you think which even way am I meant to be facing and you would see a standard holding up and it would be your your side and you could know that would be the place where you could go and you could get orientation and start again and that's what we've got as Christians we've got a standard of truth in this broken world we're not without hope we have a message and that's why the Christian should be a preaching Christian I've told you the story about the African Christian who was coming to this country to work for a church. And he'd never flown before, but he got off the plane at Heathrow and he came through to customs and he saw a sign. Nothing to declare or to declare. And he thought, which one do I go through? He said, well, I've got something to declare. 
And he went into the customs and opened his Bible. And he told them the message he'd come to declare. Well, he was a little bit misunderstood. uh, But he was on the right track, wasn't he? We have something to declare to this world. Let's not turn away from that. In Luke 10.16, the Lord Jesus tells us the value of preaching. He said, if they listen to you, they'll listen to me. He said, if they reject you, they'll reject me. What that tells me is that when we're speaking God's truth, it's as if God himself was speaking to a person. It's the standard truth. That's why we've got to get it out. You know, I remember being horrified when I was a, uh, a teenager. I was uh, uh, in a Christian friend's house. And uh, there was a leaflet popped through the door. And they went to the door to have a look at what it was. And they brought it back and they said, just look at this. And they, they put it down on the table for us all to see. It was from a new church that had opened up on the estate. And it said, come to our new church. I won't say the name of the church for diplomacy's sake. But it said, he said, we got live music, the best musicians. He said, there's children's entertainment. And then in big writing at the bottom, it said, no sermon." Uh, and we all just looked at it and said, Lord, that's a sign of the times. You know, you've got churches today that don't want to preach the word. But that's what we're here for. That's what we're here for, to hold up the message of truth. You see, we're not here to make the world a better place to go to hell from. We're here to tell people that there is a God who saves. And if you turn to him, you can be saved even in this broken world. So let's hold up our banner high and proclaim Jesus Christ. The third thing I want you to see here is our sight of tomorrow in verses 6 through to 10. Because David here is, uh, is, is moving on in his psalm more and more with more and more increasing hope. And in verse 6 he says something that God had spoken. He said God has spoken from his sanctuary. Now what this means is that there was a prophetic word given in the temple or the tabernacle as it was still in David's day. And it had been given through the priest to David. God has spoken from his sanctuary. And he said this in triumph I will parcel out Shechem. And measure the valley of Sukkot, Gilead is mine, and Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is mine, Judah my scepter, Moab is my wash basin, and uh, upon Edom I toss my sandal, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Now this was the message God sent, and what was God saying? God was saying, David, you're worried that all these people are going to attack you and you're going to lose the kingdom. But I want to tell you, the kingdom is mine. And mine is the word he says here again. Mine, 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 mine. And he says it's going to be established. And even places David hadn't yet conquered are in this list. And God says there's going to be a kingdom. And my king is going to reign over it. And what David had here was a prophetic foresight of the future. Now, what, what do these places mean? Where are these places? Well, if you look at the map of Israel, uh, it's, a, it's, it's very clever, the places that have been chosen. The first place is chosen is Shechem. Shechem is the most central place in the whole of Israel. It's the crossroads. And it's where Sychar's well was, where Jesus met the woman at the well. And that was a very key place. And God says, that belongs to me. And then he said, Sukkot is mine as well. That was on the other side of the, of the River Jordan, uh, over in the land of Gilead. And that's where Jacob was encountering his brother Esau. 
Esau and the Edomites are connected. Do you remember this is how this whole thing came together? And Jacob went from Sukkot to Shechem. So this is reflecting back in history and connecting with what had happened in David's time. But God is saying, these places are mine. Nobody's going to take it from me. Then he said, Manasseh is mine and Gilead is mine. That's the east and west of that portion, the, the, the main belt across the middle. If you wanted to go up any of the highways or the travel routes through, you had to go through these places. And God says, that belongs to me. And then he says, Ephraim is my helmet. Ephraim was the tribe which had the hill country just above Jerusalem. And again, it was defensive because you had to come through the hills to get to Jerusalem. And so God said, Ephraim is my helmet. And Judah is my lawgiver. That's where the Lord Jesus is going to reign. And you remember Jacob's prophecy in Genesis 49.10 that a lawgiver will not depart from between his feet. Do you remember that? Until Shiloh comes. And uh, it's the prophecy of Jacob, of, of Judah, having the lawgiver, the king, coming from his family line. And then in verse uh, uh, 8, he turns to the enemy nations. And he says, Moab is my wash basin. Can you see where Moab is? Moab is right by the Dead Sea. And God says, that's, that's where I'm going to do my washing, in Moab. That belongs to me. And then he said, over Edom, I'm going to cast my sandal. Now, that can mean one of two things. Some people think it's a mark of disrespect. Do you remember there was that man, uh, a few, I think about 2016, in a court in the Middle East. I, I can't remember if it was in Jordan, but he was put in prison for three years. Because what he did was, he didn't like the, uh, what the judge said, and he took his shoes off and he threw them over the head of the judge sitting in the court of law. Do you remember that story? It was in the news. That man got put in prison for three years for that. Because in the Middle East, your shoes are a sign of disrespect if you put them on someone. And uh, God says, I'm going to put my shoe on Edom. I'm, gonna, I'm claiming Edom. It could also be the, the right that, uh, in the book of Ruth, you know, the sandal that uh, secured the territory. Uh, but that's what he says, that's going to be mine. And then he says Philistia. He said, I'm going to rule over Philistia and shout in triumph. And over all these places, God says, I'm going to rule. And that will come to pass when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. He's going to rule over the world. And he will rule over these territories as well. And David goes on from this and he says in verse 9, Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? David's response to this sight of tomorrow is to say, Lord, I'm putting my trust in you, that you're going to lead us to the strong city. Where is the strong city? It's Petra. Do you remember the rock city that they used in the Indiana Jones film? That is uh, also known as Selah in scripture. And it was a very heavily fortified city. It was impossible to get into because you had to go through a very narrow uh, place called a Sikh. And it was, in, it was very good defense. And David said, who's going to lead me in there and give me the victory? And it will be the Lord, he says. He will get the victory. And one day in the future, Israel is going to take refuge in Petra when the Antichrist is on the earth. We read that in a number of places 
in scripture. So David's words will be fulfilled in the future. And he says, this is our sight of tomorrow in the face of a broken world. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know the Lord Jesus is going to reign? I heard about a t-shirt in America that somebody was wearing that said, normal isn't coming back, but Jesus is. And I thought, I want a t-shirt like that. Because you know what, during lockdown it did feel like the normal ain't coming back. But Jesus is. And that's our hope. We've got a sight for the future. And though all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put this world back together again, the Lord Jesus Christ can. And so we're not without hope. We have the future hope of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Let's cling on to that in the midst of our broken world. Our God has given that prophecy himself. And then finally we see here our strength for today. Because in verses 11 and 12, David ends on a very practical note. He says, give us aid against the enemy, for the help of man is worthless. With God, we will gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. F.B. Meyer, the famous preacher, said, here is a motto for us in all times of opposition and difficulty. And I agree, because these verses of David's here end up with his confidence in God for the midst of this broken world, for being able to cope. He says the help of man is useless in verse 11. And I have to say, as I grow in my experience in life, I'm beginning to realise that's true. God bless our NHS. But you know what, sometimes they get it wrong. And sometimes the help of man is useless. They even do, I had a letter from a friend. He said, I went for a check. He said, he said they had to put a camera inside me. And he said, I haven't stopped feeling pain since they did that. He said, I feel worse now than when before they did the check. And I've sympathized with him. You know, those people were trying their best. They were trying to help. They were being kind. They were doing the right thing. But the help of man is useless. And we've got to learn this, dear Christian friends. The arm of flesh will fail you, it says in another place. Don't put your trust in politicians. Don't put your trust in the NHS. Don't put your trust in in your banker or anybody else. The help of man is worthless. But that doesn't mean we're without any help. Verse 12 says, with God, we will gain the victory. And he will trample down our enemies. Our help is in God. And he is the one who gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. When a a famous Christian leader in Scotland by the name of Erskine was thrown out of his church in the 1700s when they were persecuting Christians, he and his fellow believers from that congregation gathered in the shadow of the uh, mountain at, at Edinburgh and they sang this psalm. With, them, with God, we will triumph even over our enemies. All other earthly helps had faded away, but God was still there to give them strength. And I want to tell you today, dear friends, living in this broken world, we can see the state of our turmoil has been caused by a God who's not going to let us get away with our sin. He is going to punish. But we have a standard of truth to hold up and say there is a saviour we can turn to. We have a sight for tomorrow. Jesus is coming back. That's good news. This world will get put right when he comes back. And for today, we have strength given us from our God who helps us to get out of bed tomorrow and go and face the world again in the strength 
he gives. We're not without hope. And this hope can be yours too. I love that story of the, of the man who was looking after his children one afternoon. And he had some work to do. And he thought, I've got to keep them occupied. So what I'll do is I'll give them a puzzle. And he found a big map. And he thought, this will keep them busy. And he cut up the map into lots of pieces. And he said, right children, here's a map of the world. I want you to put it back together. And he thought, that's going to keep me, give me at least an hour I can get on. After about five minutes, the kids said, Daddy, we've done it. And he said, you can't have done. And they said, no, we've done it, Daddy. And he went in the sitting room, and sure enough, they'd done it. And he said, how did you do that? And they turned it over, and they said, Daddy, there was a picture of a man on the other side. We found if we put the man back together, we put the world back together. And what a message that is. You know, some of you are broken people in a broken world. Come to the Lord Jesus. Let him put you back together. And it will help you for the future. Let's sing our closing.